Happy day, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. If you're tuning in for the first time or for the first time in a while, the focus of my podcast is information that I share on my website blog. So how do you find my blog? From your favorite browser, navigate to my website, www.copperrangellc.com and click blog which appears along the top of the landing page for my website. If you access my site on a mobile device, click the three-line menu icon, which is usually in the upper right of your device window. My blog posts have the great photos behind the stories, so you definitely want to make a stop to my webpage so you can check those out. Also on my website, www.copperrangellc.com, you can view my images, you can learn about me, and you can keep up with my art show schedule. At my art shows, you'll find my work for purchase. It's a great way to shop my photography in person and meet me. You can also shop safely and really easily online. Just click the buy icon, the little shopping cart icon on any photo, and you'll be on your way to an easy and safe shopping experience and you can join the ranks of my collectors. Today's podcast is titled A New Brand of Duck Hunter. In many parts of North America that experience cold winters, the wildlife landscape changes, particularly when it comes to bird life. Many of the birds we get to see in spring and summer migrate to and reside in warmer climates during fall and winter. However, depending on your location, ducks are one kind of bird that may be seen actually in greater numbers during winter. I live in an area that's surrounded by large water bodies, including the Potomac River, the Chesapeake Bay, and other lakes and ponds that provide excellent habitat for ducks. Actually, my area is in what's called the Atlantic Flyway. It's a major north-south flyway for migratory birds in North America. The route generally starts in Greenland and follows the Atlantic coast of Canada and the United States all the way south to the tropical areas of South America and the Caribbean, or if you prefer, the Caribbean. Every year, migratory birds travel up and down this route to their overwintering sites, their breeding grounds, and in search of food and protection as the seasons change. Audubon describes the Atlantic Flyway as encompassing some of the hemisphere's most productive ecosystems, including forests, beaches, and coastal wetland. Just like small birds and raptors, many ducks migrate along the Atlantic Flyway and many species overwinter in my area. So in today's blog, I'm spotlighting a few of the beautiful, and I mean beautiful, and unusual ducks that I photographed this winter and recently. These include the Northern Shoveler, the Northern Pintail, our well-known Mallard, sea ducks including the Long-tailed Duck and Surf Scoter, and Wood Ducks, the Buffleheads, the Common Merganser, and the Hooded Merganser, and the Striking Canvasback. You know, I think ducks are underappreciated members of the bird world. A lot of people think of ducks as something only to hunt and to eat. If you search 
hashtag ducks on Instagram, you'll see as many photos of ducks that have been shot by hunters. You'll see duck jewelry. You'll see duck decoys. Or you'll see the commonly seen ducks like mallards. Rather than a representation of the beautiful variety of duck species that are out there. So now, you know, we know Instagram is far from the gold standard in wildlife information, but, you know, also ducks aren't necessarily easy to locate or even to photograph. I should say particularly to photograph. With a license, most ducks can be hunted during designated seasons. So with a few exceptions, you know, ducks have really learned to avoid humans. Again, our familiar mallard duck is one of the few species that are easily recognizable to a lot of us, but there are so many more amazing varieties of ducks out there. You know, there are three things that I find really interesting about ducks. One is the distances some of them migrate, two, their nesting behavior, and three, the diversity of colors and patterns among ducks and primarily male ducks. Because in the duck world, like in a lot of the bird world, uh, many of the female ducks, most of the female ducks, are actually varying shades of brown and they don't have the color that the male ducks have. So in today's podcast, as well as in the blog post, I talk about these three things and I try to showcase these three things that I find really interesting about ducks. So let's start with a little about the long tail duck, a duck that I think a lot of us have never seen. I photographed uh, a non-breeding or a juvenile or an immature male long-tailed duck in February of this year, 2021, along the Maryland coast of the Chesapeake Bay. Long-tailed ducks breed in the Arctic. They're a sea duck. The one I spent some time with on a very cold yet sunny winter day was spending at least some part of the winter in the relative warmth of Maryland's Chesapeake Bay. In the fall, long-tailed ducks leave their Arctic homes and migrate west or east. The population that migrates eastward, not only do they migrate west or east, they migrate southwest or southeast coming from the Arctic regions. But the population that migrates eastward overwinters in large water bodies like the Great Lakes and the open waters of the Chesapeake Bay, where I photographed this one in February. I was thinking as I was photographing him that he probably thought the 30-degree day that I was out there was balmy. Um, Long-tailed ducks, which get their name from the male's long tail feathers, are considered sea ducks because when they're seen, it's usually out on open ocean or large lakes. Long-tailed ducks are often the most abundant bird in the high Arctic. And get this, they are capable of diving as deep as 200 feet or 61 meters. The surf scoter is another sea duck that I photographed in the Chesapeake Bay this winter. The surf scoter has incredibly interesting colors and patterns on their beak. This is really a cool and unusual looking duck. The first time I photographed a surf scoter, I didn't know what I was looking at. It was about three years ago and I was standing on a beach in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, when I observed a couple of birds floating way out on the water. At first I thought I was just seeing pelicans or seagulls and it wasn't until I actually looked through my lens 
that I, and I did some follow-up research that I realized I was seeing a surf scoter. Never seen one before. But actually that experience left me with the good reminder to always look through binoculars, a scope, or your telephoto lens. Because what looks like something common off in the distance really may not be. Uh, surf scoters breed in far northern Canada and Alaska. And then like a lot of ducks, migrate southward, east or west, and then they winter all along the U.S. Atlantic coast and actually other warmer locations. One of the most uh, interesting things that I first learned about ducks is that some species of ducks nest in tree cavities. I just, that was the last place I would ever think to look for a duck is in a tree. It just doesn't seem to fit together. But actually wood ducks, buffleheads, common mergansers, and hooded mergansers, and a few other species actually nest in tree cavities. Nesting in tree cavities offers protection from the elements and predators. That makes sense. However, the ducks don't create their tree cavity nests. Rather, they'll occupy cavities created by other birds, including woodpeckers, and they'll also um, nest in cavities that have just naturally evolved. So the same duck species that nest in tree cavities may also use human-built nest boxes placed along the edge of a water body or wetland. So if you've ever been out at a public wildlife area, it's got a wetland or water body, and you see a, what's a nest box sort of in a pole standing in the water that's often been put up for ducks to nest in. And particularly if it's a little bit larger. Uh, you might be curious, <clears throat> how old are ducklings when they fly out of these tree cavity nests? In the case of wood ducklings and merganser ducklings, they leave the nest 24 hours after hatching. That is just sort of hard to get your head around. But guess what? They don't actually fly from the nest because they can fly. They will literally jump out of these tree, these holes in the trees where they where they hatched and if everything goes well with that jump out they follow their mother or the hen as she guides them to the nearest water you know just after hatching then this is 24 hours the hen may lead her ducklings up to a half a mile or more over land to find a suitable water source for swimming and feeding and as you might guess jumping out of the nest and then traveling over land when you're a day old means not all ducklings are going to survive Tree cavity nests can be quite high off the ground and may not be very close to water. With that said, if your timing is right and you've spotted a duck nest in a tree cavity, you might capture some stunning photographs of ducklings making their first entrance into the world. The blog post on my website, www.copperrangellc.com, has a couple of my favorite images of wood ducks, common and hooded mergansers, and bufflehead ducks. These are all tree cavity nesters. I really encourage you to go over and take a look at those photos because they're really stunning birds. Other duck species, including the canvasback, ruddy ducks, the greater scalp, ringneck ducks, redheads, and occasionally mallard ducks, actually make their nests, not in trees, but over water on rafts of floating vegetation. 
This strategy provides a measure of protection from land-based predators like raccoons, coyotes, foxes, or even cats and dogs. I want to spotlight the canvasback duck, which is sometimes called King Can, because they have what's called an aristocratic profile. And you'll see this very clearly in my photography. Check out the picture on my website. But they're also called King Can because they're the largest species of diving duck in North America. It's a big duck. Canvasbacks are also one of the fastest flying ducks in North America, capable of flying at least 60 miles an hour, or 96 kilometers an hour. Like many ducks, canvasbacks nest in very northern parts of the U.S. and and Canada, and they migrate to warmer locations for the winter, again like the Chesapeake Bay region close to where I live and where I photographed a canvasback this past winter. The two other U.S. regions where canvasbacks are known to overwinter is along the Pacific Coast and in coastal Louisiana. Canvasbacks are heavily dependent on healthy watersheds and wetlands because they spend nearly all their time in the water. I came across this beautiful quote about canvasbacks that I really love that I want to share with you. The quote is from a resource that I came across from Ducks Unlimited, which is one of the best resources I have come across on ducks. So here we go. May we always have the opportunity to meet these legendary birds up close and personal. This shall be so only if we look after the wetlands that sustain canvasbacks across our continent. Like a flight of cans arrowing through an autumn sky, our course is clear. Let us not fail the birds or future generations in our resolve. Check out my blog post for amazing images of this beautiful canvasback duck, the greater scalp and the lesser scalp, which are two other powerful and beautiful diving ducks. You know, from a distance, if you see a northern shoveler, our next duck, you might mistake it for a mallard because it has a beautiful green head similar to a mallard. But a close look will reveal a really big difference, which is the shape and length of a shoveler's beak, which is where they get their name. Northern shovelers have a large spoon-shaped bill with comb-like projections on the sides that they use to forage and filter out tiny crustaceans and seeds from the water. This is actually one of the reasons why hunters say that these are not very tasty ducks because of what they tend to eat. Northern shovelers are ground-nesting ducks, as are northern pintails and mallards. Let's go on to the northern pintail. Birding experts claim that northern pintails are widespread. And the things I read about northern pintails, they say this is a widespread duck. But uh, truthfully, I've never seen them in large numbers, which means each one I photograph is quite special. During their summer breeding season, the pintail ranges from Alaska through Canada and into the Great Plains of the U.S., During the winter, pintails may be found in southern Alaska, nearly all regions of the interior U.S., and all along the Atlantic coast. The northern pintail I photograph was spotted in a Virginia wetland during winter, along with a few other pintails as well as other waterfowl. Waterfowl management experts and advocates have concerns about declining pintail populations, One factor in this duck's decline is the destruction or alteration of what's called the prairie pothole region. 
This region includes the five upper Midwest U.S. states of Minnesota, Iowa, North and South Dakota, and Montana, as well as three Canadian provinces of Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Alberta. Increased agricultural and commercial development in the prairie pothole region has degraded or destroyed breeding and feeding grounds for northern pintails and many other northern migratory north america migratory waterfowl the u.s great plains and prairie pothole region are number one on the 25 most important and threatened waterfall habitats on the continent you know as i come to a close here and this is something i think about a lot when i'm out photographing wildlife you know life is not easy as a duck and also for a lot of wildlife You know, for ducks, those that make it are really true survivors. So, you know, what's so hard about duck life? You know, first, in most cases, within 24 hours of making their appearance into the world, ducks are essentially on their own, yet they can't fly and are nearly defenseless. Second, humans can still legally hunt ducks. Duck hunting is still incentivized as a conservation tool and duck hunting remains somewhat popular. What do I mean that duck hunting is incentivized? What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Financial support from duck and goose hunters has been a foundation of wetlands conservation, which is the areas where ducks try to live out their lives, ever since the federal duck stamp was first issued in 1934. Waterfowlers, duck hunters, have contributed billions of dollars to wildlife management by purchasing duck stamps and hunting licenses, paying excise taxes on sporting arms and ammunition through the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act. In fact, many of the same government agencies that are charged with protecting wildlife refuges and habitats for wildlife also actively encourage duck hunting, and that's been the formula in the practice for decades. So a third reason duck life is hard is that humans have gotten into some bad even if well-intentioned behavior of feeding ducks unhealthy things like bread much has been written about this please check out the resources in my blog post for more about what's wrong with feeding ducks bread Um, but actually some people have have uh, this this kind of habit of feeding ducks bread has led some to call bread the ultimate junk food for birds so true Let me just simply say that bread is not for birds. If you're feeding ducks bread, please stop. There are alternatives that are much better for them and the environment. You know, last and definitely not a least reason duck life is hard is that healthy wetlands, marshes, and water, the habitats that ducks need to survive, are constantly under pressure. And some just frankly disappear, all due to human development, encroachment, and pollution. Thank you for listening today. Visit my website, www.copperrangellc.com, where you'll find links to the issues and resources highlighted in today's podcast. You can view all my wildlife and nature images, send me an email, keep up with my show schedule, and become a collector. Have a great day.